Well, we do invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church, which they can find through the door over here by the piano. And as our children are going to Children's Church, I'd invite the rest of you to open up a Bible to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. If you're using one of those Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, you can find our text on page 1026. 1026 is where you'll find Luke chapter 9, the story of the transfiguration. I'll tell you, this is a picture-perfect Easter Sunday, isn't it? Huh? The whole creation testifies to the resurrection today. We all got a sermon just driving here. The Transfiguration, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Let me read this story and then we'll study it. It says, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to them, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud, saying, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. You know, I've always enjoyed stories where the hero of the story has some secret, powerful identity that he keeps to himself. And no one else in the story knows that the hero is really this secret person. You know, like Clark Kent is really Superman kind of thing. And I I found that that kind of a plot line always gets me when I hear stories like that. There's some sort of wonderful narrative tension as you see the hero uh, every once in a while kind of giving hints that he really is somebody else, but people can't quite figure it out. And typically, at the end of the story, there's some kind of climax where the hero comes out into the open and everyone realizes that this really was Superman or or whoever uh, the story may be. I love those kinds of stories, Uh, whether it's the old ancient versions like Homer's The Odyssey, where Odysseus goes on his long voyage and he comes back. After 12 years, uh, his wife, Penelope, has assumed he was dead, after 12 years, but then when he arrives, um, he doesn't want to just rush right in, so he puts on a beggar's outfit to kind of hide himself, and he sneaks back in to see what's going on, and he finds that his wife is sort of besieged with uh, different suitors, all these guys who want to marry her, and she doesn't want to marry any of them, but she doesn't know what to do, so she uh, devises a contest. She takes her husband's bow uh, and challenges them. Anyone who can bend the bow, string it, draw it, and shoot an arrow through 12 axe heads gets to be her husband, because that's something only her husband could have done. And 
so she doesn't want to settle for anything less than what Odysseus was like. Uh, and sure enough, all the men try it, and no one can even bend the bow, let alone draw it, let alone shoot the arrow. And then Odysseus, who is hidden, says, you know, I want to try shooting the arrow. And so everyone's like, ah, you're a beggar, get out of here. But somebody vouches for him, someone who actually knows who he is, so he gets a, sh- a chance. And sure enough, he bends that bow, he strings it, he takes an arrow, notches it, he draws the bow effortlessly and lets the arrow fly through 12 axe heads. And that's when it becomes to be revealed eventually that he is Odysseus and he has returned. And he goes on to kill all the other suitors, but that's not the point. Um, <laughs> It's the revealing part that's the interesting part. <laughs> or maybe you're familiar with, you know, a more modern version. Anyone seen the Batman, I mean the uh, Spider-Man movies? Batman's a good example, too. The Spider-Man movies, uh, which I, I love the Spider-Man movies. I'm looking forward to the third one uh, when it eventually comes out. But, you know, it's, uh, it's a story of Peter Parker, and he gets bit by a radioactive spider, and he becomes Spider-Man, sort of typical high school story. And... Uh, <laughs> He's in love with this girl. His this girl he's lived next to his whole life. Her name is MJ, and he loves her. And eventually she kind of falls in love with him, but she also has a thing for Spider-Man. So it's like a love triangle with two people. It's weird. Um, and they... So there's a sort of romantic tension. And in the end of the very end of the second movie, there's the revelation that he's Spider-Man. And what happens is he's fighting the bad guy, and in the fight his mask kind of gets ripped so you can see his face. And she's sort of over here, and she cries, you know, the damsel in distress. And he turns around, and she sees him, and at that moment, they realize. He realizes he's become known. She realizes that he is Spider-Man. It's just a wonderful, sort of poignant moment in the, in the whole story. You know, it's, it's just this exciting kind of climax as it's revealed who he really is. Well, that's the kind of story we have today. It's one of those revealing stories where Jesus who has, in a sense, a secret identity, shows who he really is. Uh, In fact, uh, if you were here last Sunday, the the whole section that we've been studying in Luke is kind of about the identity of Jesus. Who is he really? In fact, if you look back at verse 18, in case you weren't here last Sunday, we'll just catch up real quick. Verse 18 says, Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Then the question, verse 20, But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. So that's the question. Who is Jesus? Crowds, eh, they got all kinds of crazy answers. They don't really know. And then there's Peter. He has the right answer. The Messiah, the Christ. But even that's still kind of deficient. He doesn't fully understand everything that that means or all that that is going to entail. And so now Jesus takes them up on the mountain. And here is going to be a revelation. It's kind of like, you know, Clark Kent takes three guys into the phone booth sort of thing. He's going to show them who he really is. That's the idea. So look at verse 28. It's a fuller revelation of the identity of Jesus. It says about eight days after Jesus said this, He took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And then what follows are three revelations of the character and identity of Jesus. The first one is in verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. 
This is what uh, the church has called for many centuries the transfiguration story. The story when Jesus is visibly changed. Uh, his face changes, his clothes start shining. Uh, Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun and that his clothes became as bright as light. Uh, Mark tells us that Jesus' robes became whiter than any human being could ever bleach a pair of clothes. So he suddenly starts shining, this light is coming out of him. And we know in the Gospel of Luke that shining and light is a symbol it's a, uh, of heaven. It's that there's a heavenly person here. Sometimes it's an angel, sometimes it's God himself, but there's some kind of heavenly person. This is not just a regular guy, this is someone from above. And notice that Jesus' face and, and clothes are shining. It's sort of coming out of him in a sense. And, and so I think what's happening is we're seeing who Jesus really is. He's letting us see into his true nature that up to this point has been concealed a little bit. Because the face and the clothing in biblical imagery is often symbolic of the inner person. So you see what's going on on the inside by looking at someone's face. That's the idea. So in other words, the point is Jesus is showing who he is. Just like Superman taking off the glasses and ripping open, you know, and there's the S underneath. Um, that's how uh, what Jesus is doing. It's not that Jesus is some kind of regular guy and then he's being turned into something that he wasn't before. It's that this is who he's been all along, but he just kind of kept it quiet. And now he's showing us who he is. So there's the first revelation, that he is someone from heaven. He's more than just a regular person. This is someone from above. Then the second revelation is a little bit weirder. Verse 30. It says, Two men, Moses and Elijah, appear in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So here's some sort of weird, like, Old Testament alumni day something. That Jesus is there, and then there's Moses and Elijah, and they're talking to him, and, you know, what's going on? Uh, you know, who, who are these guys? Why are they there? Well, again, I think the basic idea is just as the luminosity coming from Christ reveals his heavenly identity, so the appearance of these two Old Testament prophets, in a sense, kind of speak about who Jesus is as well. So there's Moses. You know the story of Moses. He led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, out of bondage, took them through the Red Sea, came out the other side, through the desert. They went to Mount Sinai, got the Ten Commandments, into the Promised Land. That was Moses. And then there's Elijah. Elijah was a prophet who came after Moses several centuries later, uh, who also, by the way, went up on Mount Sinai and experienced the presence of God, interestingly. And Elijah uh, was a symbol of... His, his return was going to be a symbol, according to the Old Testament, of the coming of the Messiah in the kingdom of God. So I think when you look at each of those characters, they're saying something about who Jesus is. I think Elijah is the easiest to understand. His presence simply means that Jesus is the Messiah, the kingdom of God has come. But Moses is a little more tricky. You know, what's Moses all about? And what I think is so interesting here is that there's a lot of elements in the transfiguration story that are kind of echoes of the Moses story. It's very interesting. So that in a sense, what he's saying is Jesus is like the new Moses. Just as Moses liberated the people from bondage, so Jesus' mission is to liberate us from slavery and bondage, just like a new Moses. I mean, look at the story again. Notice this. Jesus goes up on a mountain, right? That's what Moses did. He went up on the mountain. Mountains are very... When you start hearing mountain language in the Bible, you should kind of go, hmm, what's going on here? Because it's usually some kind of uh, symbolic language that Jesus is going up just as Moses went up. Notice Jesus takes three people. 
And Moses, uh, at one point, goes up on the mountain. He takes three friends with him. Uh, Jesus' face has changed. Do we remember Moses, when he spent time in the presence of God, his face was shining. Interestingly, later on in the story, Peter says, let's build three shelters. And that word for shelters is the same word that's used to describe the shelters the Israelites built in the desert. So you get all these interesting kind of like parallels. And when they all start coming like that, and there's so many of them in one little text, it's like, mm-hmm, trying to tell us something. What's most interesting, this is the clincher for me, I was so fascinated by this. Look at verse 31. It says, they spoke about his departure. Note that word departure. Which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So they, they're talking about the fact that Jesus is about to go to the cross, he's about to be crucified, buried, and raised. That's the departure. But what's interesting is, you know what the Greek word for departure is? Exodus. Isn't that cool? So, it's, so literally, I mean, if you want to just do a literal translation, it's they talk to him about his exodus. So in other words, he's Moses. He's leading this exodus. And just as Moses took the people of Israel out, so Jesus, through his death and burial and resurrection, is kind of going through the Red Sea, so to speak, and he's leading people out of slavery and bondage into uh, the Promised Land, which is a new relationship with God and eternal life. So the Moses story is kind of pointing forward to the Jesus story. It's really pretty cool. Um, the, the reality is that we are all slaves and, and in bondage as human beings. And I know that sounds funny to us as Americans because God has blessed us with so many freedoms. We live in such a wonderful, free country. But as human beings, we are, at a certain spiritual level, enslaved. Um, and the Bible tells us, from cover to cover, that we are enslaved to sin and to evil. And I think human history tells us the same message, that human beings are not good and pristine and pure, but that there's a, something within us that's warped and twisted. Um, and the Bible calls that sin. And I know sin's not really a word we use a lot, except you know, we're kind of joking around like, oh, I, I committed a sin, haha. But you know, the Bible's really serious about that word. And what sin means, if I could just give you a simple definition, is that sin is rebellion against God. It's us not doing what God calls us to do, but doing our own thing. Sin is the idea of me being in charge. I do what I want. I spend my money how I want. I live how I want. No one can tell me what to think, believe, do. I'm fine, and maybe I'll call to you, God, if I need some help, and I'm in a pinch, but otherwise I'm going to do it my way. That's the essence of sin. It's self-deification, in a sense. It's the self at the center of reality rather than God at the center of reality. And, and behind every sin, you eventually trace it down to that selfishness and that self-reliance. That's the fundamental nature of sin. And it's so weird because we would define that as the very essence of freedom, right? We say, well, that is freedom, to do what I want to do. And the ironic thing is when we live that way, it's actually a kind of bondage. And it's ironically, real freedom is when we surrender our will to God's will. And somehow that's free. And I know that doesn't make sense and doesn't seem right, but that's how it works out. That's how it works out. And all of us then are sinful people before God in need of liberation from our slavery to sin and forgiveness and a new life with God. We need to all experience that Exodus story in Christ. Um, you know, we're all sitting here and we all look nice because it's Easter and we all have our kids dolled up and they look great. And uh, you have suits on and ties. Some of you are wearing a nice dress like me. Um, <laughs> you look good. You look good, people. But what would happen if right in this moment we all experienced a transfiguration. And we were like, you know, whatever happens in that. And 
and our inner moral and spiritual condition was manifested visibly. You know, and just as Jesus' pure, holy, righteous character was manifested by pure light, what if our spiritual moral condition was manifested visibly? And what would that look like? Uh, be interesting, wouldn't it? I bet some of us, perhaps, I don't know, we could just kind of imagine. These are imaginations. Maybe some of us would um, have a T-shirt on with, you know, beer and, and wine stains all over it because, you know, we're drunks. And nobody knows it. And, uh, you know, I'm fine. I just need a little bit after work to relax. And I'm under control and whatever alcoholics tell themselves. But, you know, reality is, you know, that's, that's where our life is. Um, perhaps some of us would appear with, like, brass knuckles and wristband with spikes and chains because we're violent, angry people. We're, we're bitter. We're unforgiving. There's a lot of hostility in our hearts. And we're angry at people who lived 30 years ago and we're still mad and we're just negative. And there's this angry violence kind of within us just percolating there. Maybe some of us would be like Hester Prynne in Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. And a big A would appear on our shirts because we are unfaithful. We're unfaithful people. Uh, whether that's literally having an affair or you know, having a virtual affair with people online or whatever. We're unfaithful in that part of our lives. Um, perhaps some of us, you know, instead of our face changing, our head would just inflate because we're so, <laughs> you know, have such big heads, we think we're so great, we're so important, and our education and our money makes us so important and whatever. You know, we're just caught up in ourselves. It's easy to do. Um, perhaps um, we would have gold chains around our necks. Like, remember Mr. T? Remember that guy? Yeah, I love Mr. T. It was great. Uh, A-team, great uh, theater. It's wonderful. And so here's Mr. T. And, and he's got all the gold chains around his neck and the gold rings. And, and you know, some of us would look like that because we're so all about uh, money and possessions and clothing and appearances and having the things we need to have and buying this and buying that. Except instead of it looking beautiful, it would weigh us down like those ghosts in the Christmas carol who come to Ebenezer with, with the money on them and its chains weighing them down. The enslaving power of money and pursuit of riches. And I bet all of us, no matter what kind of clothing we had, no matter what our sort of outward besetting sins, if we were to take them off, all of us would have a t-shirt on underneath. And the t-shirt would be a picture of ourselves with a crown sitting on a throne with the world under our feet. Because that's the sin that is under all sin. It's self-deification. I will live my, my way because I'm in charge. That's the essence of it right there. And Jesus came to liberate us from that sin. He came to die on the cross so that our sins can be forgiven and we could go from being the enemies, the rebels of God, to brought into a new relationship with God. Just as Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go so they may worship the Lord in the wilderness. And so we need to leave bondage and sin to be able to worship God the way we were created to do, which is... The purpose of human life is to know and worship God. That's why we were made. What's the meaning of life? It's really not that hard. It's to know God and love God and serve God. The hard thing isn't knowing the meaning of life. The hard thing is living the meaning of life. Is to live for God and for Jesus Christ. And so Jesus invites us, and that's why he died on the cross, was to make that way possible out of Egypt. Uh, you know, what was Jesus doing on the cross? If you can kind of visualize him on the cross there, why was he hanging there? 
Was he doing it because of making a political statement? No, no, he was dying for our sins. Imagine if all of us, whatever that outward garment is of sin that we would be wearing, imagine taking it off and putting it up on Christ. That was the crucifixion. It was us taking our sin and putting it on him. And imagine as we did that, if an angel appeared next to us with a glowing robe like Jesus had and he wrapped it around us and covered us. That's what it means to be a Christian. I don't know what you guys think of when you think of the word Christian. Maybe you think of kind of smarmy, self-righteous, snobby people who act like they're better than everyone. And, you know, I go to church and I, you know, do this and that and I read my Bible. Do you have a Bible? Oh, I could lend you one. You know, people like this. <laughs> and unfortunately, there are people like that who call themselves Christians and it's very irritating. Um, and if you are a Christian, sometimes you act like that. You're like, ah, oh, I'm the church leader, whatever. So we, we know that we, we can be like this. And the Christians can act like that. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is not about, I'm so much better than everyone, and therefore I'm going to be preaching to everyone. Christianity is about realizing the depths of our sin and brokenness. And then coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you are all I have. That's my hope. And putting my whole trust, not on my religiosity, but on Jesus' obedience for me. And on the other side of that, living a new life in Christ. You know, Christianity is not just about fire insurance from hell and the sweet by and by. Christianity is a living relationship with Christ that begins now and goes on forever and ever. It's, it's the most amazing thing to know God. And so rather than being a thing of pride, I think true Christianity should bring utter humility and brokenness before God and a dependence upon Him. That's the very DNA of the faith. And to miss that is to miss the whole thing. And so Jesus is that new Moses offering anyone who will believe in him freedom from bondage. So who is Jesus? He's the heavenly one come down. He's the new Moses who leads us in liberation. Then there's a third revelation. It comes at the very end. It's interesting. The third one is an auditory revelation whereas the first two are visual. So look at, uh, let's just pick it up in verse 32. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving, Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. I don't know, have you ever like, met someone famous and you're just at a loss for words? It's like that kind of moment. Like Peter doesn't know what to say. And he's like, um, let's make some shelters and have a camp out. No, that's not right. No, stupid, you know. So he's putting his foot in his mouth, sort of classic Peter. And so while he's fumbling around trying to figure out what to say, the third revelation happens, verse 34. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, just like the cloud on Mount Sinai came down. Interesting. The cloud comes down. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Why were they afraid? Because this is not just fog. This is the presence of God manifested in a sort of visual kind of way. That's what, just like on Mount Sinai, God came down in the form of a cloud, so now God comes down again. It's this Mount Sinai, the sequel. He comes down in a cloud, and they're afraid because they sense the presence of the Holy God. That's why they're afraid. It's not because they're afraid of fog. It's God is there. And notice that we know this is God because the cloud talks. Look at verse 35. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. 
And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. So we have a third revelation. This one's auditory, not visual. The first two are visual in the sense the third one interprets it. The third one is for people like me who sometimes don't get it on the first two and I need someone to really spell it out for me. And so he spells it out. This is my son. Who is Jesus? Is he a prophet? Well, yeah, I mean, he spoke God's words, but he was more than a prophet. He was more than Elijah. Was he uh, like Moses? Yeah, he was like Moses, but he's greater than Moses. Was he, uh, you know, the Messiah? Yeah, he's a Messiah, but he's greater than the Messiah. He's the one from heaven who has come down to liberate us from our sins. He's the Son of God in a unique way. The unique, one and only, beloved Son of God who came from heaven to earth to reconnect humanity to God. He is the one who is both fully God and fully man, and therefore the perfect connector between a separated God and humanity. And he came to bridge the gap and reconcile us to God through the forgiveness of our sins. That's who Jesus is. And it's important for us to remember that. It's important for the disciples to have that sort of mountaintop revelation. Because the thing about mountains, the problem with mountains is they're great. It's great to climb a mountain, but at some point you've got to go down the mountain. You have to go back down to real life, regular life. And in, down in the valley, it's tough to remember what you saw on the mountain sometimes. It's easy to forget. Because the disciples were about to have their faith tested. Remember, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to fulfill his exodus. And they're going to see him there on the cross. And when he's there on the cross, the first thought coming into their minds might not be, look how beautiful and wonderful this is. He's redeeming us through his blood. They might be looking at the cross thinking, did we follow the wrong guy? We thought this was the guy, but I don't know. Maybe he tricked us, and this was like a cult, and he you know, brainwashed us, and now we're here, and now he's dead. In fact, not just dead. He's between two thieves. He's dying a criminal's death. Did we make a mistake? And they might have doubted. They might have wondered. So they needed to look back to that mountain and remember, no, this is the Son of God. This is his exodus for us. And then, on the third, and then they put him in the tomb, and on the third day he rose from the dead. And there on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is what we're celebrating today, was yet another, in a sense, mountaintop experience where Jesus makes blatantly clear that he is the Savior, the Son of God. See, it all comes down to the resurrection. The whole Christian thing, the whole Christian thing that Jesus taught us, all sits on this one thing, the resurrection. If the resurrection is not true, the whole thing collapses really does. If resurrection didn't really happen, then we really are wasting our time this morning and we ought to be out gardening or something. But if the resurrection is real, then it's everything. And Jesus is everything because he's the Son of God. So it's kind of an all or nothing scenario. And thus the question of Jesus' identity is the question of the ages. Who is Jesus and did he rise? And if he rose, then he's the Son of God. And so we as Christians, we look to the resurrection for our confidence. We don't look to ourselves or our self-righteousness and we're so good. We look to Jesus. And because he was raised, we have confidence. Because, you know, even as followers of Jesus, we get slapped around by life just like everybody else. Becoming a Christian does not make one immune to the uh, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. We, as Christians, you you become a Christian, you can still have a really difficult spouse 
You can still have no spouse. You can still have no children. You can still have children who are a real problem. Your children can get sick as a Christian. Uh, you can still lose your job. You can still do really bad in school and struggle with grades. I mean, all that stuff can still happen. You're not rescued from life as a Christian. And so sometimes we can wonder, is the Lord really with me? Why is this happening and that and that and that? Why is it all happening at once in my life? And as Christians, we have to stand on the resurrection and say, He's raised, He is the Lord, and therefore my hope is in Him. This is not in vain. And as Christians, we struggle with the sin in our lives. Even though we are saved, we recognize, yeah, we've come out of Egypt, we've gone through the Red Sea, through Christ in a sense, now we're on the way to the Promised Land, but we're not there yet. And we still struggle with sin in our lives, and we look at things we do and... We're like, ah, oh, I'm so bad at being a Christian. I'm such a hypocrite. I say I follow Jesus and I do that and I say that. Oh, we're so frustrated with ourselves. And we got to go back to the empty tomb and say, Jesus was raised. He really died for my sins. It wasn't his sins, because if it was his sins, he'd still be in the grave. No, it was my sins, because he's vindicated, he's raised. And we hold on to the resurrection for our hope. And even as Christians, we look in the mirror sometimes in the morning. It's like, who's that old person in the mirror? <laughs> These wrinkles? Oh, that, wouldn't that happen? You know, what, what's wrong with my hair? Where's it, where'd it go? Someone stole it, you know. Uh, and it, is that gray? Oh, it's gray hair, you know. And you start dyeing our hair, and our, our youthful sort of shapely bodies kind of start to sag and droop. And there's an old guy in the church who always, he's a really funny guy. He always says to me, you know, Jeremy, I used to have a big barrel chest when I was a young man, but all that's behind me now. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's like you're just, when you get old, and our bodies start falling apart, and things start coming up, you know, off, and it's just, it's, it's, it's a mess. We feel, we feel death slowly but surely working its way into our bodies. And we know that these bodies that we have are falling apart. And that someday death will have the final say. Uh, well, maybe not the final say. Because if Jesus was raised, it's not the last word. And so as a Christian, I have hope that I will be raised. Not in some spiritual, metaphorical, new age <laughs> I mean, like, raised. Like a new life. If Jesus was raised, then I can be raised. That's the promise. So it's my hope. I, against all things that would come against me in the Christian life, I stand on that empty tomb and I say, you know, he's raised. He's not here. And so my hope is in Christ. And even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe that's like not where you're at and you're still checking it out. And yeah, That's cool. That's where you are right now. and I, That's fine. And I guess I would just challenge you this Easter morning and say, think about Jesus. Just investigate it a little bit. There's a lot riding in the balance here, whether or not this is real. Uh, seek it out. Pray. I mean, if you're up there, God, talk to me. I'd like to know. And, you know, explore. Ponder a little bit whether or not Christ is truly the Son of God. Um, and maybe you're like, ah, that sounds interesting, but I don't know. I mean, it sounds a little freaky, too. Jesus comes to you and says, follow me. And it's like, well, no, Jesus, I've lived in Egypt my whole life. And, yeah, it's not great. But then again, I don't know where you're going to take me. Where are we going again? Promised land. What's it like? Don't worry. You're going to love it. Hmm. Uh, how are we going to get there? Don't worry. I'll show you. Okay. Uh, do I need to take anything? Don't worry. I'll provide. Uh, well, it sounds like I'm not going to have a lot of control of this journey. Exactly. 
That's the point. <laughs> We've got to take off the shirt with us sitting on the throne and us with the crown, and we have to follow Christ. And so the Christian life is not simply heaven in the sweet by and by. It begins now with an exciting adventure where we start to follow Christ. And as we follow him, we are slowly but surely by his power changed. And you see, I got a lot of issues. I got a lot of questions. A lot of things don't make sense. I got issues with this and that. And, you know, if I become a Christian, I have to become a Republican. I don't know. You know, you don't. <laughs> Jesus isn't a Republican or Democrat. He's a different government system. It's called uh, a dictatorship. He's the king. Except a dictator. It's probably the wrong word. He's the king. He's the kingdom of God. And so it's about following Jesus and not about politics. or it's, it's surrendering our life to him. And even if we don't have all the answers, we're not totally sure where it's leading us, we go because of who Christ is and we follow him by faith. And let me just close with this thought, that we need to listen to him today because the opportunity for listening is not forever. I think that the manifestation of Jesus and the transfiguration is not only a preview of the resurrection, I think it's also a preview of the second coming. That it's a vision of what it will be like when Christ comes in glory riding on the clouds. Like we confessed in the Apostles' Creed earlier. Do you remember that? On the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And what's the next line? And from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So if he really is real, then there's a time limit on this when he will return. Because when he returns on that day, there's not going to be any debating over is Jesus this or that. I mean, he'll just be there. And then it'll also be too late to decide. So ponder it, and I would say ponder it now. Why not? And seek out Jesus. And let God speak these words into your heart. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And Heavenly Father, I pray now that that's what you would speak into our hearts. This is everything, Jesus. If you are the Son of God, then this is everything. And if you're not, then it's nothing. So I pray that you would speak in our hearts. That it wouldn't be some preacher's argument or it wouldn't be some spouse or some friend who's trying to convert us or anything like that. It would just be, it would be real, whatever it is. And Jesus, if you are the Son of God, that you would speak into our hearts. Reveal your glory to us and call us to follow you, even without all the answers and even without uh, knowing where it's going to lead. Help us just to go out in faith and to trust you for our, our forgiveness and for our future. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were raised. Thank you for your, your power. Thank you for your power in my life. Lord, you know that I am the last person in this room who deserves to be wearing minister's robes and standing in front of a church. But I thank you, Jesus, that you died for me that you cleansed me and that you changed me. And I just stand in awe at it. And I know, Lord, that all of us here who are in Christ are clothed in robes of glory. Help us, Lord, to lean upon you in our difficult times and the trials we're facing. I know, Lord, that just because we're here Sunday morning on Easter looking nice, that doesn't mean our lives are perfect. Uh, some of us feel like we do need to go have a couple drinks just to get through this day because it's so hard, the things we're going through. And I pray, Jesus, that on this day, Instead of leaning on other things, we would turn to you. And that we would look to you for our hope and our confidence and our joy. And so, Jesus, you are all in all. Help us to listen to you and to lean on you by faith. And I pray all this through your mighty name, risen Christ. Amen.